Because, you know, I think part of the value of projects like Surviving Society is that you are redistributing attention mm. within the public sphere. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is how we continue to deal with the legacies of empire. Hello everyone, welcome to a Surviving Society special collaborative episode with the Politics of Representation Collective at the University of Cambridge. We are at the Visual and Critical Representation in the Age of Impact Conference and we are really excited to be joined by Mark Carrigan legend of social media although is no longer on social media which i'm sure we'll talk about now but mark you gave an amazing opening introduction to the conference well effectively the nuances of social media and i wondered social media use and i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the book that you've got coming out and basically what your messaging was this morning or just introduce us to it yeah thank you uh, so i mean i've been interested in public sociology for a long time In fact, I've been interested in public sociology for as long as I've been interested in sociology. And so I'd always seen social media in light of that. And during my part-time PhD and the work I've done since my PhD, doing social media has been a key part of that. And I've worked as a practitioner, a trainer, a consultant, as well as an academic and social theorist. And over time, I've become much more cautious about how social media is being institutionalized within the academy. I'd always seen it as this remarkable technology that can let us create these free collaborative spaces outside of the structures of the metricized managerial academy. And I'm increasingly worried that that's not as possible as it once was. And so today I tried to talk about representation, you know, the kind of possibilities social media offers for representing the groups we do research with in different ways, for engaging in different sorts of dialogues with them, but also how we can recognize the vast structural challenges we face in realizing those, because we are all under so much pressure within what myself and Philip Vostel have called the Accelerated Academy. You know, we have to do more, we have to do better. And the way in which these kinds of structural pressures shape the possibility we have for using social media in these creative ways. So I did what I hope wasn't too depressing, because it wasn't intended to be depressing, but having gone from someone who six or seven years ago would say, everyone should tweet, everyone should blog, because it's a way of doing more authentic, more energized, more even pure, Mm -hmm. even though I wouldn't say the term scholarship, I now have what I think, in my mind, is a much more nuanced view, one which involves subjecting my idealism to sociological scrutiny. But I'm aware it often gets read as pessimistic, And I think that in itself is quite interesting, how talking about the nuance of social media is seen to entail a pessimism towards it. So I tried to lay that out, and it's building on uh, a second edition of my Social Media for Academics book, which came out earlier on this year. And I had a chapter in there with the new edition called The Dark Side of Social Media, which felt a bit melodramatic, but I couldn't think of a better way of framing it. And I've got a book that myself and Lambros Fatsis at Southampton have co-authored called The Public and Their Platforms. Uh, which is trying to rethink the public sociology debates in terms of the challenges and opportunities of digital platforms. And so this morning, I kind of drew some ideas from there and tried to speak to this point of representation. I think it's quite interesting. When you talk about that, when you just said about when you try to put the nuances of social media, like the complexities of life, over, and people read it as a negative. And what that kind of symbolises to me is that social media right now is fully formed a reflection of the real world, right? So 
right now, like in the real world, you never hear good news, you hear bad news. People always talk about the negative aspects of the internet or social media. So the idea that terrorists use it or people use it for grooming or bullying, those things are spoken up and those things do happen. But there's also lots of collaborative spaces where people talk constructively and positively to about many different things. But those things are seen as normal, so we're not talking about those. We only talk about the dark, dark aspects. So the narrative that's put across in the media is it's hard for people to understand because the way it's represented is that this place is a bad place. But it's mad that, like, just following on from that, T, that people are making that distinction and responding to Mark like that a little bit sort of offensive. Because, of course, the internet and social media is a mirror of society because it's just another part of society. But you see, what's interesting is the when the internet started, it was the emancipatory potential of the internet, right? Knowledge with no limits. Now, that was the, in its purest form, but it was never going to be that way. But that still holds true. People still have that view. So that's why people exchange ideas so freely, because they still think it has that emancipated potential to speak about and speak, speak about ideas freely. And it's carried on to the, into social media. I can say what I want. No, you can't. I can't agree more. And uh, I read again recently, John Perry Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. Mm -hmm. Something which often doesn't get mentioned is that he said this at Davos. <laughs> so the fact he was invited to Davos itself speaks volumes. Just for some of our listeners, Mark, can you just say what, what Davos is? I'm oh, sorry, the World Economic Forum. So yes. effectively where the world's elites of all sorts and from all sectors meet to talk about being elites and to talk about running the world. How great it is. <laughs> As I so the fact that Perry Barlow styled himself as an outsider and yet was there, you know, I think that is something that should be underscored. Mm. And he talks about, oh ye weary giants of flesh and steel. And you know, it's such an important speech in terms of internet culture. But not only does it seem so overly melodramatic and pretentious, you know, from a contemporary perspective, it also seems like it completely misunderstands what this technology was. As you say, it's a mirror to the world. It expresses things that are in the world. Whereas, you know, there was that real sense from people like Barlow that this was a new frontier beyond nations, beyond states, mm -hmm. where people could be free and liberated in cyberspace. When I look up at the early days of the internet, that sense of emancipation, it kind of speaks, it speaks true of that Western notion of the Enlightenment, freeing yourself from the shackles of the past. So this was another step in the enlightenment, breaking away from those kind of things, those structures of the past. As in anything, if you don't break them, they just carry on through in another form, right? So this has been interesting to see how those, those same issues have coalesced and found, evolved, places, and yeah. evolved and found places on the internet and found a home for them, right? What's quite scary is the level these things are deployed, whereas messages now are conveyed directly to the individual. So I have no way of filtering that. So one of the key tactics of the far right and one of the things that's kind of made them grow was the ability to mainline their message to people directly with no interference. So this is the first time that they could, they could grow without changing their message. And sometimes, even when they did get caught, they would change the, I think it was the White Knights, they set up a, a page under Martin Luther King Day. But really it was... What's the White Knights? It was the a far, 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 far right. KKK people. No, just another fire I think I saw a theme yesterday and someone was talking about what's the guy's name that invented the internet? Is it Tim Berners-Lee? Yeah. And how he doesn't like what's happened with the internet and is really shocked about what's happened with the internet. But I guess when you have something that's so vast, there's so much possibility, 
you almost don't, you're not always reflecting on how those things could... I don't think you could, it's unintended consequences, right? Yeah. But what's quite interesting, I feel, from what stuff that you're talking about, is the, the this destabilisation of epistemologies, right? Which can be a positive thing, but also a kind of negative thing, because this destabilisation gives, gives, gives life to falsehoods. So flat earthers, for example, that's become a thing. Who would have thought in 2020 that's a thing? Epistemology, how would you define epistemology, Mark? Uh, questions about knowledge. <clears throat> yeah. What we know, how we know it. God, yeah. that's so clear, why, yeah. I told it's a really you clear way of, It's a really clear way of saying it. I just love those big words, epistemology. No, but I think it's good to use that word, but sometimes I don't ask people what they mean by epistemology, they don't say it's clear as that, yeah. or we have over there, yeah. But, I think these things, you know, they can be, they can obfuscate really easily, mm-hmm. but I think when they're used as shorthand, so there's a kind of longer series of questions that pointing out as a series of questions would take ages. Mm-hmm. And so it works as a shorthand, but the problem is that it's a shorthand that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, actually, you know, being reminded to define these terms, mm. I think, is really important. So mm. this doesn't become a kind of inclusive, self-referential conversation. Mm. How do you think the Academy can leverage social media, kind of meet the goals of knowledge? Or well, should they be? That's or the should, point. Because you're getting more academics that are being told they have to have Twitter. Right, so, I remember, so my last supervision, my supervisor said they need, they're going on courses to learn how to podcast, right? So the university's paying them to do that. <gasps> so, I, listen, but wow. as sociologists, we understand, if you look at Habermas's analysis, the systems will seek to colonise life worlds. That is a given. As academics ourselves, can we shape that process? Because we know that process is going to happen, so should we be driving it? Or is it something that we should resist? I mean, I hoped we could for a long time, and I think I had this idea that social media would turn everyone into public sociologists, at least a little bit of the time because we'd be using Twitter as a kind of routine part of our scholarship you know we'd be doing podcasts we'd be writing blog posts and I think when people are under pressure particularly that's not a positive thing at all and when you see it through the lens of the kind of sociology of labour and what it is because you know I think we are scholars I think there is such a thing as a scholarly vocation and we're committed to the idea that we can accumulate and build knowledge by focusing in depth on particular topics over time but we're also, and I say we're also, but actually, no, not all of us are, and that's part of the problem. You know, we're employees or seeking to be employees of universities. And as we can see from the current strike action, the third in two years, universities are not happy places to work within, particularly when people are trying to find work within universities and struggling to, then the ideal of scholarship can actually become something really unpleasant where you know, people stick out uh, in a conditions that are deeply exploitative because they feel it's their passion, it's their vocation. Mm. And like the politics of how we respond to that by kind of recognising that we have a passion for what we do and not stamping that down, but equally recognising how universities in a way very similar to the creative industries, I think, have evolved in a way that exploits that passion. I totally agree with what you're saying, Mark. Like, when we set up the podcast, it, for us, it was about trying to make an audible sociology that's public, that spoke about things in detail, but equally connected things to lived experience, blah, blah, blah. All these positive things about coming together and to talk about sociology in a way that we sort of understood and inviting people to come on, etc. And one of the things that we've had to be really careful of as the podcast has got more popular, more listeners, what's different about our podcast is that our listeners are always potential guests. And 
we're kind of seeing in the pressures that have grown in the last two years in academia and it sort of coincided when we started our podcast and obviously it's not just two years but it's got it's really getting to breaking point over the past two years it's been really important for us not the podcast not to be another another neoliberal device within the machine of institutions and to remain separate and something that we can use to share ideas etc but sometimes when we have academics that contact us I see a desperation in their in their in their um, message to us, and I, I use that very loosely that word desperation, and I use it from an empathetic point of view that I know they they want to come on because they're under so much pressure to get their next job or to get something published or to get their work out there. Like obviously, like nine times out of ten, people are coming on. They want to like do the public sociology, get the stuff out there for people that need it. But I, there is also this sense of like individualism which we're, we're complicit in as well because we're, we're, we're putting this podcast out there but it's really like it makes me so sad that it's like you're chasing you're sending me like six emails to come on the podcast because of the system that you're in is exploiting you so much I think you're doing something incredibly important which yeah. I think a lot of projects and collectives doing the kind of work that you're doing are not thinking about this to the same extent but being reflective about it because you know I think part of the value of projects like Surviving Society is that you are redistributing attention mm. within the public sphere. And when we think about how social media popularities and those hierarchies are going to reproduce hierarchies existing in the academy already, then you know, to be reflective about your capacity to give a platform to people mm. who might not otherwise have one, to raise the profile of some people and not others, I think is really important. Yeah. My issue is, is I have that what I'm seeing that social media has allowed capitalism to corporatize private lives, right? So it's allowed you to corporatize and sell bits of your life. So people are selling themselves all the time. It's a performance, a performance in return for some capital, in return for my labor. And that is an important shift because it's making you, it's convinced, it's, it's put it down to the level of the individual. Where yeah. you, you convince yourself, I need to do this. And that is a very, it's a very neoliberal argument. It's down to you, the individual. You make your own luck. You do, but we don't. But we have to. We we tread a very. I think even with our podcast, we mm. tread a very fine line on that. And 100%. we're always trying to say that like our podcast belongs to the academy. It belongs. It's a public sociology platform. It's not us. But at the same time, you can't separate us from like. Listen, I'm part of it. We, I understand yeah. that reflection, but. I'm looking to bring my people through, right? Yeah. So I need to kind of give back. It needs a kind yeah. of reciprocal thing. Whereas social media, and, and at its worst, at its worst, is that that social media where it's all reflect, it's all centered on the individual. So where you see in people's Instagram is pictures of themselves. Mm. It's all centered on yourself. But that's what I, I feel like. What Mark has been saying in your presentation, and I'm guessing you say it's in the book. Is that academics have become like that yeah. as well this rise of academic Sorry, celebrity and this is something that we again we tread a very fine line on because yeah and I, I think you're right I think it's good that we're doing that reflection but um, that reflexivity but lots of people aren't doing that like it's the idea to be famous it's so powerful you can see society John Stuart Mill kind of said it basically like the level of mediocrity is everywhere you don't have to be exceptional you just have to be loud and people will buy into that. If they can buy into you, right? You're just a commodity. Mm. And this is an interesting thing, like shows like X Factor, The Voice, and it's, it's constantly pumped to the idea that you can be just average, but you, but you can be someone. I mean, we were talking before we started about our respective experiences 
of being micro-celebrities in that <laughs> sense. For the purpose of the listeners, can we just explain what guys were micro-celebrities and your genres of micro-celebrity? Yeah, so I put social media very uh, early in academic terms. Uh, I started using Twitter during a part-time PhD. I mean, I, I've not said this on a public record before, but I just split with my fiancé at the time and was depressed and a bit lonely. Mm. And I suddenly discovered Twitter and all these people to talk to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, had the habitus that led me to feel comfortable loudly and frequently expressing my opinions online. And by the time I began to really reflect on what it was about me and what it was about Twitter that led me to accumulate a lot of followers in academic terms quite quickly, I was already kind of ensnared within it. And over time, I mean, it just became a weird situation because I found, you know, through a lot of my PhD, I think I was probably the most followed sociologist in Britain. Yeah, you were, yeah. But I also am basically quite a shy, reserved person. When I first met you, I was like, oh my God, you're Mark Carrigan from Twitter. <laughs> like... Yeah, I had, I had quite a bit of that. And, you know, it was, it was clearly good for my career in a whole host of ways. Yes. But I was enjoying it less and less, particularly because I started to find conferences really weird. Because it kind of vacillated between, on the one hand, I suddenly found myself with a load of people who all wanted to talk to me and were often kind of assuming knowledge or kind of felt <laughs> like, you know, kind of acting in a way that we knew each other. And on the other hand, I just wanted to kind of sit and think and write because I'm basically quite quiet. You know, I'm a nerd who likes reading theory and writing about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. And then, yeah. and then, T, your experience? Uh, I was I was against social media and I only started because someone asked me to. And it just span out. I just started taking, sharing bits of my life. And it turned out people like bits of my life. So things that I used to be teased about when I was growing up, comics, obsessively about the gym, my trainers, turned out they're quite fashionable. And then when I started talking about 80s stuff, and then over time, I realised if I kept on posting these things, people would send me stuff, and they'd be like, oh, that's really cool. I was like, oh, it's a nice feeling. And that just kind of kept on and kept on. And then in the end, I had like thousands of followers, and it was on Instagram, and then I realised this is affecting my life because I'm not behaving how I normally would. It made you really sad. Yeah. I remember. I remember when we met. You were at the peak of your social media mm. career, and like you were getting like, it's upset not, with it because it's not real. Because you were going to the trainers conferences, yeah, I, people coming up to you, like what you were saying, Mark, being like as if they know you. People, people are deferential to me, and I don't like people. I'm no. I'm no one special. I have a problem paying deference with someone without knowing that I respect them, right? So, so people paying deference to me, they don't know me to do that. Don't do that. It makes me feel awkward. I'm no one, and when people are respecting you for the wrong things, materialism, like I'd get more likes, I remember one time I put a pair of trainers, and I think I got 10,000 likes for a pair of trainers, and a picture of me, it got 50, and I was like, material things, that's, that's not me, why am I sending that out into the world? So why did you quit? Those reasons, man, like, I thought like, the moment, or? Right, so I had just broken up with my girlfriend at the time, and I thought, I've been sharing too much of my life with people that I don't care. And people reacted to my life, you're a great couple, you're this, you're that, what about the trains, what about, the, how are you? And I'm like, but these people don't know me. They're not really asking to be sincere. Or if they are being sincere, they don't understand. So I just thought, you know what? I came off. And that's been, what, four years I've been off, right? But people, was, like the other day, someone said to me, said to my friend, I haven't seen Tiso on Instagram. <laughs> In four years. I know. And that's, that's how people still speak. They're like, why are you on Instagram? Or 
why are you not on, um, I'm not, I've never been on Twitter, why are you on Instagram or, I messaged you on Instagram the other day. I haven't been on it for four years. It's a strange, it's a strange world. It's very, very surreal. Sorry. It, it is. Are these, this is such an, it's such an interesting conversation thinking about like people moving away from social media. Like I came off Facebook about four years ago now because so many people that I'd grown up with in the West Midlands were just posting so much um, Britain First, BMP, far right stuff. Um, I just couldn't handle it anymore, like these people that I'd like grown up with. And then Instagram I came off of about two years ago now because I just couldn't handle seeing people on holiday, like things about body images, body image and like just not feeling great about myself. Stayed on Twitter. Um, because, and I think I draw to people that we've had on the podcast on, uh, before, like people like Brianna Walcott, Francesca Sabans, um, Keisha Brown, they're talking about the impact of digital blackness and particularly black feminism and how Twitter has been such a great space to like read that, embrace that, and like listening to you talk, Mark, about one of the reasons why you went on Twitter and what that felt like through like a breakup. Like for me, when I'm feeling isolated by academia, Sometimes Twitter does make me feel like less isolated. It gives me connections to people that I know are like-minded to me. And I know that that positivity, like you can really pick apart that positivity and it's an incomplete positivity. I was talking to you about that earlier. It is interesting, but we're lucky. Like we do, we do a lot of social media by the podcast, but we schedule it all. So we use Buffer and George, our executive producer, does all our Instagram. He does most of our Twitter as well. Like we don't have Facebook. We are kind of separate from it in that sense we've got more barriers up i think creating those barriers is really important yeah and you know if you think about a lot of things in daily life you know we develop routines and we put boundaries around things so we have a time when we do it a time when we don't the novelty of social media as well as the way the platforms have been designed to be oh. addictive makes it really hard to put those barriers up but you can't separate because you carry your phone with you everywhere so unless you remove that app from that, your phone, you're, you're not going to not look at it. Then if you've got a Google phone, you're, all, you're already logged in. You just go on Chrome, <laughs> you go Chrome. You put it Twitter and it's already it's the same. So, so, again, not trying to be conspiracy-minded. So, what we have to start looking at is we, have, we kind of have to gaze upwards and understand what are the structures that are driving this. So, Mark Zuckerberg has gone to the US government and said we need to be regulated. Why would a company that big, who been, they've been trying to regulate for years, automatically opt for self-regulation? There is something quite Why sinister Mark, about Mark that. Mark right? has lots about Facebook. Yeah, no, I, I agree, it's very sinister. And I think it's to stave off a more aggressive agenda. Mm -hmm. I was reading a book recently by Tim Wu about the history of broadcast media and radio. Um, and there are similar points in time where industries have actually invited regulation because they do so from a position of strength. Mm -hmm. And by inviting regulation, they make it less likely they'll be broken up at a later date. Because... What? My only kind of saving grace, I was reading a paper yesterday about the localization of global trends and how the local is still the kind of main way of how youth interact. So, for example, drill music... Who, youth? Youth, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Younger, so youth will get something but it'll be in the local that it will transform. So they might be influenced from global trends, from the, either it be the Black Atlantic or whatever it will be, but when it comes to, it gets localised and it changes. And those performance, the performances and the music that they produce refer to local points. Nothing to do with the global, nothing to do with social media. And the use of social media refer to local. So if you look at the arguments in Drill, they're talking about boys from different parts of the area, not talking about the global. 
So mm-hmm. social media will reflect the local still. Mm-hmm. And that's quite positive because it shows you that there's still a concern about real people. So people, face-to-face dialogue is happening. Mm-hmm. Whereas the arguments people give is that no one's talking. Kids can't talk. It's always, I feel like when you're at, you probably have found this, Mark, but sometimes when you're at conferences, um, so one yesterday, someone they were talking about social media and how it's making people more hateful, blah blah blah. And I was just like, people have always been like this; it's just evolved. Yeah. Anyway, someone was like, I just feel like young people need to talk to each other more. We don't talk to each other enough. And it's like, hang on a minute. I just find that argument so like empty. One of the reasons why I'm finding it frustrating, even being read as a critic of social media. Is that I'm worried I'm going to get lumped in with that? No, you know, to call it a moral panic would be unfair. It's not quite that, mm. but there is a pathologization of young people's experiences, and yes. it's often just bad sociology. Mm-hmm. You know, it Great. seems like a one-on-one to me that you can't read back a common intention from a common practice mm-hmm. just because you observe people seem to be doing the same thing. Doesn't mean they actually are so, doing the same thing. No, I feel like it's sociology 101. Just because you think something doesn't mean that it's what's happening. But it seems like common sense, right? Yeah. It seems like such a plausible interpretation that technology is ruining young people's souls. Yeah. yeah. I don't think people stop to question it at that kind of methodological or theoretical level. But I think, it, I think that narrative is, again, it's well woven into the history of the West. So you look at the Luddite movement, a kind of reactionary movement to technology that's moving, they feel too fast. What's the Luddite movement, So, so the Luddite movement, anti-technology, when they started the Industrial Revolution, breaking machines, they think it was taking their jobs, all that kind of stuff, right? But we kind of got that now. <laughs> so, yeah, precisely. Because yeah. it was taking, they were concerned about the implications for their jobs. That's the bit of the Luddite mm-hmm. movement that often doesn't get quoted mm-hmm. when it's invoked by people now. Mm-hmm. They were defending their life with us. Yeah. One of the things, I think it was a couple of years ago, Mark, um, I was lucky enough to work with you for a little bit, and I remember us going for coffee, and um, I said to you, Mark, people are leaving Facebook. People are leaving Facebook. <laughs> Facebook, Facebook, Facebook's losing power, I promise you, Mark. And you were like, um... And I was like, I was like what, what, what? And he goes, and you were like, basically, in some countries, Facebook is how you get the internet now. Africa. So Africa. you can't, like, it doesn't... Actually true, and I was like, no, no, I swear, so many people, are li- so many people leave Facebook. You're like, actually, it's more powerful than it's ever been. That's quite scary. So obviously, Facebook is a corporation kind of monopolising people. But what I found quite interesting is platforms like TikTok, Snapchat, and the languages that young people are using to communicate with each other. The level of abstraction to convey a message in what 15 seconds. And it become a, genius. a thing like that level of abstraction. I don't know many people that can think like that, and these kids do it daily, which is I don't think people take it, take that into account when they're speaking about young people and the use of social media. The, the level of lateral thinking is insane. They'll put a, a group of kids put something on TV and like, they're pissing themselves. I'm like I don't get it. Like you have to, you have to explain it to me. I feel like an old, no, you feel like an old person. But that's why with that kind of assumption that if it's changing, it's in decline, mm. is so problematic because there's a change in form, mm. and so there are some things that you know arguably could be seen as a cultural decline, but there are others that are quite positive cultural transformation. <laughs> and I think it is abstraction, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I really like that way of framing it, mm. and you know, that was my experience early on with Twitter as well. That as well as it kind of being a way to be connected to other people that I got a lot out of. It was that discipline involved in the, the radical brevity of 140 characters mm. that distilling a complex thought in a way that could be expressed persuasively in 140 characters. 
intellectually, I always find that incredibly satisfying. Definitely. And I have to go back over some of my threads about um, my PhD when I'm, when I'm doing some bits, when I'm writing up, because I, some of the stuff that I wrote is actually more profound than when I'm actually sat on Word typing up. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's the essence of it. But yeah. You, you see, the radical disjuncture is the traditional form of accepted knowledge is that long-winded form. So you're taught to write academically. You're taught to, when I and when I go when, when you go to work for commercial enterprises, you're taught to write corporately. So you write reports. So it's a way of an established form of communication. And so when you start writing in those kind of like 148 characters or using not well, not correct syntax, the, the reaction you get, especially if you use that with academics, that's not proper. Yeah. That's not real. That's not knowledge. And. How does that make one feel that, that devalues yourself? Because this is your everyday communication, right, for young kids. And so the question is in my mind, how do we recognise the challenges of social media and the downsides and this political economy mm. of a world in which you know, Facebook is one of the most valuable corporations in existence? How do we recognise all that and not get locked into this kind of regressive view that it's all going to shit, effectively? You know, how do we recognise that there are kind of cultural aspects to this which are positive and should be defended? Mark, can you talk to, just in response to your own question there, the stuff you were talking about, the twi Twittering machine, yeah. yeah. It's uh, a painting by the artist Paul Klee that describes, can we put it in the show notes? Yeah, 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 definitely, show notes. shows these kind of creepy mechanical birds caught on a line, as one art critic put it, chirping under compulsion. Uh, it's a term the political analyst Richard Seymour first used, I think, in a series of blog posts in 2017. Uh, Dominic Petman, a literary theorist, has also used the image. And Seymour's book in particular, which came out last year, is one of the most interesting things I've ever read on social media. Well, he's big in the game. Come on the podcast, Richard. <laughs> I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. No, he's cool. He's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of recent stuff he's doing about digital fascism, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, he does far right yeah, stuff. Yeah, scary. Fantastic. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, you know, he's making arguments that other people have made, in a way, but he's doing it in a kind of speculative mode, where, you know, he's kind of gesturing towards where is this all going? And a lot of the literature on platforms, it tends to be, rightly, I think, for what he's trying to do, preoccupied by platforms as they currently are, mm -hmm. not where this is all going. And he conveys this kind of inhuman, machinic element to it, the way in which, as we were talking about earlier, Social media, you know, kind of hooks into our desire to be liked, our desire to be respected, our desire to feel connection. And Seymour offers this incredibly grim image lurching towards fascism, I think fascism a very new form, in which this whips up things, it's a machinery that amplifies and intensifies, you know, in some ways all aspects of mm. ourselves and our lives together, but is really starting to bring forth some, you know, demons in the world. One of the many things I like about his analysis is that he is thorough about the social consequences of the technology without blaming it all on the technology. So yeah. he situates this in terms of contemporary capitalism in a way that's really rich at the level of subjectivity and psychoanalysis. Whereas a lot of the writers on, on platforms, so someone like Nick Cernicek, who in many ways his work has really influenced my own, I don't think he's very good at theorizing agency in terms of what it is like to be human and how that is changing. And that's why I think Seymour's book is so important, because it gives this sense of, you know, this kind of machinery that's hooked into our souls. And he does it in a way that's not declinist, that's not saying that everything is being ruined by this, but does take it seriously as a kind of political technology that's reshaping contemporary capitalism. The 
premise we kind of, or we should frame it as, we live in a mediatized world, right? So therefore, every aspect of our society will leverage that technology. So criminals will leverage that and use it to present themselves in whatever light. So once we understand it, that it's, it's part of the society that we live in and different people use it in different ways, it, I think it will lead us to a better understanding that it's not a dark place, it's us still. We're still the it's issue. Us. Yeah, yeah. Humans are still the issue. We still need to work on these things. So the elite will use it in the same way they've used every other tool in a, in a, in a way of domination, right? So Donald Trump will use it in a way to push through the things that he wants to push through. Like I said, the criminal will use it in a way. Kids will use it in the same way that they, they will do things in real life, sneakily try and do things that they shouldn't be doing. And once we understand it's part of, it's us that is the issue. And issues that we still haven't resolved ourselves. But it's having those conversations, and we because we have resolved them now, we just moved them onto another platform. I'm suddenly thinking back, there's an episode of The Simpsons um, <laughs> about prohibition, and at the end of it, Homer says, To beer, the cause of and solution to all life's problems. <laughs> and I feel that way about social media, yeah, almost, because it's causing the problems, but it also does offer solutions <laughs> to it. And what I'm really obsessed with increasingly is how do we break out of that cycle? How do we take advantage of what it lets us do or not let ourselves be take advantage, taken advantage of? In Mark Fisher's, uh, I think possibly the last essay he ever wrote before he died, uh, he used the phrase, how do, we, how, how do we use social media and not live in social media? Oh my God, that is the question. I mean, tell me. Subjectively, you know, how you kind of stop one, because if you're just trying to use it, you get sucked in. Because mm. the very things that make it so powerful, the fact so many people are using it, you know, that's a consequence of its addictive design. Mm. It's grown the way it has because it's been designed to grow and to crack something. Mm. But I think, it, I think it also understands human beings that the fundamental, they were social animals. So we always want to communicate. And that idea, you can't, that's, that's what is being human. We form communities, we talk. And, but if we could break down those, those kind of barriers that exist in the real world, like ideas of race, gender, once we solve those in the real world, we can carry them into... Well, we do talk about these things in these spaces, right? I've got a question for both of you. And obviously this is something that post-election, like we've been talking about, what's our role in trying to fight what we now have is like a basically a far-right government, the move to the right across Europe, blah, blah, blah. What's our role in, in this stuff? And we've kind of realised between the two of us that... It's, we're going to have to do a lot of the change in people's mind. And we realise true liberation is not everyone has to do that, but it's something that we want to do. We want to change people's minds. Can social media do that? Can you get people that are racist to not be racist? Can you get liberals to understand their... Um, how could how their complicity in inequalities? Can you get... Do you know what? Can we do that on social media? Or does it take face-to-face, living interaction to do that stuff? Uh, I think it has to be face-to-face. Yeah. And so one of my concerns about social media on the left, and why I think Mark Fisher's point, I think, for 2015 is so prescient, is that, you know, for all Corbynism's rhetoric of grassroots organisation and democratising the party... Enough. Yeah, it failed for many reasons. Um, but my hunch is that at one level, social media has been a distraction from that. And the kind of success of 2017, there was a feeling that while well, social media has helped us get one over on the Tories, and actually this time round, the, the Conservatives support a really dark social media campaign. I think the people who were leading their social media strategy had been looking very closely at techniques being used around the world and were combining them in new ways. I mean, Seymour wrote a really interesting piece, I think, in Vice, talking about the Tories having used social media 
to systematically gaslight and harass the nation. And, oh, you know, I think that is not an overstatement. Yeah, but it's the hard, it's the hard pill to swallow. But Mark, I feel we've got to get in front of them. But the art, the all right did the same, and like I said, they, they spent a long time looking at the all right spent a long time looking at the, the kind of left movements of the sixties and seventies and implementing them in a strategy online to win the culture wars, right? And they did that successfully, and they managed to shift the Overton window to such a degree that what seemed uh, abhorrent seemed normal because it got people talking, and it's the idea to kind of because everyone's got a phone. I can direct, direct my, tailor my message directly to you. And also the idea that you could, you can get um, information from, from Facebook. You just, you, don't, you just need to buy it. And, that, the, and the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. Sign up, you don't need to buy it. Did you sign up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and it shows you that, that, that there's a loophole that I can get information that's tailored directly to certain people. I know what you like. And the fact is you're volunteering that information directly, freely. And that, that's the most scary thing because when I see on the street, you see people handling surveys, you'd avoid them. And now people freely will tell you who their friends are, what they have, how much they That information is going somewhere. That, that, that kind of metadata, the ability to kind of influence people, influence elections, is so pressing. I don't know how to avoid that or try to kind of shield from that. Because like I said, it's, it's, social media is a reflection of society and people power will seek to kind of... It's so mad though, listen to you talk about elections. Like you think about like 2008, Obama, like we romanticise social media so much and actually it's been, it's the opposite has happened now. But like, and that's not to romanticise Obama, just like that moment was seen as intrinsic to social media as well. It was, it was a baby still, right? Yeah. 2007, 2000, Twitter's 2007, yeah. Facebook's 2007, yeah. iPhone's 2007. Oh, 2005, what's Facebook? Uh, 2005, I think. Yeah, 2005. 2004. But everyone gets, iPhone comes out in 2007, right? Mm-hmm. By the time 2008, everyone's got an iPhone. So this is, these things are baby technologies. Yeah. So by the time that, so what, what, by the time Trump comes around, we're like a few years in, right? Yeah. But why is the, the right being more successful than the left in exploiting this? Because on balance, I think they have. Yeah. And racism, Mark. The lure of racism. But, no, you know what, I think, I think, Satnam says this to us, like it's ra- racism's for capitalism. The, the, the narrative is well established, but, but I, I think the, the strategies they've used are very clever. So they've used, Memes, they've used anime, they've used popular culture in ways that the, the left would have done in the 60s. But the left, right, the left right now and liberals right now are so concerned about being precise about facts. So if someone raises a good point, I'm going to point out how wrong you are and beat you down with my rightness. And so we're using knowledge as domination. But they're, they're not into to talking about that, they're talking about to evoke feeling in people. And they've used, they've used social media to do that properly. I mentioned earlier in the talk, a uh, paper by Mel Chamaris, uh, why we can't have our facts back. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Important. That um, drives you mad, doesn't it? Yeah, it's that sense of, you know, if only we could kind of reassert the authority of facts, then everything would go back to normal. And I think increasingly it's a kind of liberal nostalgia or even liberal populism. That sense that we need to take away all these bad things that have emerged, and if we can get rid of them, we can go back to the good old days. And, you know, we, we can't, if indeed there is a we in this kind of conversation. I think, like, I think uh, uh, the work of John Stuart Mill speaks kind of treaties at the moment, the idea that we're liberals, right? So we want to let falsehoods rise and the truth will eventually beat this down. But if you look at the words of Nietzsche, we understand truth is a relative concept, right? And so the anti-enlightenment thinkers have more to say about this and this destabilisation of epistemologies and how we see truth. Because right now, the promoted, right now we see truth being, well, like, you're not even... We're, we're tired we see, of experts. We, we, we see the flexibility of truth. 
So I say the Earth's round, you say it's flat. And we can have a massive debate about that, right? Which, at one point, seemed almost impossible. Oh, I'm not doing that, though. I'm happy to go and speak to Gary and Steve and tell them why a boat for Boris is not going to improve their material conditions. And also, like, Peter and Anthony are included in that in Hampshire as well. But I'm not... I don't want to... I don't want to do that. That's not my role in the revolution. Yeah. I don't want to have flat... Right, I had debates with flat earthers. But, no. But yeah, kind of these debates about facts. And I think one of the really toxic things about social media is that it becomes so quickly counterproductive. Yes. But I think the marketplace of ideas is really important for thinking this stuff through because we recognise that the marketplace is not really a marketplace, but there is a societal exchange of ideas that is structured in predictable ways. And that leaves the question, if the right adapts more effectively to this terrain than the left, what do we do on it? And I think it's important that even if we kind of recognise the importance of face-to-face conversations Mm. and particularly creating forms of organisation that mediate the existential and material pressures people face in their lives, we still have to represent that to the world in some way. Mm. But if we, you know, the, the importance of the point you're making, I think, is that if we were to represent that in a way that involves establishing what is true mm-hmm. and what is false, what is accurate and inaccurate, that's not going to be very persuasive. Mm-hmm. There was a thing uh, in one of his last public lectures, Pierre Bourdieu talks about working with artists to give symbolic force to critical ideas. Collaboration. Exactly, and I was thinking back to that this morning. So, you know, we need to get away from this, as Will Davis once put it, like hurling facts at our enemies until they agree with us and find more effective repertoires for doing this kind of work online. Yeah, but you see, so got to change so where you're doing this it. This kind of comes ties into a theme of this season's podcast. The idea of building solidarities, right? So this is the key. So if we could build solidarities with people who are adjacent to us, it gives those ideas more force because I'm not your natural ally, but I'm willing to concede in certain points. And I think sometimes social media doesn't do a good job of showing people of true arguments. So sometimes Twitter, it's two points of view that are never going to agree. People are not looking to concede a point, they're looking just to argue. But that true level of dialogue and that true level of solidarity, if I'm sitting at you're my ally and we can make a, a more forceful, a more convincing argument to persuade people. But I think in order to have solidarities and allies, we all have to do introspection, reflexivity. And 100%. I think some people are more up for doing it than others, which is where you get tensions on the left, for example. Like, some of the people on the left annoy me sometimes more than the people on the far right. So I'm like, guys, come on, like, it's that look at yourself. It's that sense of complacency, right? The yeah. left is, has that shield of, we're okay, we're, we're the good guys in that kind of binary position. But I think when you understand the nuance of stuff, like, I've got my, some, some of my mates are super racist, but they're my friends still. Because I understand the nuance in that. So they can maintain their views, but sometimes I can question their views, and, but it doesn't damage that bond that we have. And I think the left, we, we have that moniker of being that good guy. But we don't understand that in this good guy, where there's anti-Semites, there's racist, there's sexist, but we kind of push that under the carpet. I mean, this is ultimately the training which I think we have to understand academics using social media for public engagement, for public sociology. Because these kinds of constraints on doing it effectively are ones academics and academic Mm. culture, I think, is almost uniquely ill-suited to do this through platforms for so many reasons. Which is why I think projects like Surviving Society are so important. Almost, you know, I wonder increasingly if we need to kind of detach from social media individually in order to re-engage with it collectively. Yes! That's really interesting. 
Yeah, yeah because it takes the personal out of it and it becomes a mode of thought and expression and critical reflection rather than it being that that individual that's attached to that. It's a it's a collective that lots of people can be part of. Yeah. And so you know you still attach to it as individuals. Yeah. But as we were talking about earlier, there's then an ethics of it akin to the ethics of publication mm -hmm. and the ethics of being an editor, mm -hmm. where you have a responsibility about how you use the platform you've created yes. for social purposes. And governments have realised this, right? So that's why they've leveraged podcasts and brought them into their kind of their sphere of influence. So BBC have their own podcast thing. Apple, so it's a way they've curated, so they understand the level that these people have access to voices that we can create and leverage and sometimes to our advantages. I understand the grassroots nature of it all, but the gatekeepers still remain the same. So kids don't have to go to record companies to get record deals, but Google, Apple, and Facebook, Amazon still control that, so there's still a, a corporate it's element. It's the, the power's evolved, hasn't it? It's just, it's just it's smooth, right? Yeah. So there's still these gatekeepers that we're still kind of in the kind of frozen neo neoliberalism, right? Mm. So they, they, these people leverage us, or le for example, they leverage difference at the moment to sell goods to us. They don't really care about difference, so you might see more black women on TV, but yeah. the attitudes still remain the same. Mm. So you're leveraging difference, or you might leverage my voice. An article I was reading about stigma. And Imogen. I think this was no, it's, it's an anthology. I don't know, it was one of someone in the anthology. I'm not too sure who said it, but it was about how madness has been taking people's life, own life stories about saying about talking free about mental illness has been taken out by the system. So people using their voices. God, the corporatisation yeah, of mental health. Corporatisation. So mad. using people's lived yeah. experience of so social media is my, my life, your life, my experience is my voice, but I'm, they're leveraging it and using it for a different purpose. And it turns out that these corporations, so there was a thing saying, give us our stories back. There was a group saying, give us our stories, but hands off our stories. And it's a quite, a thing, it's quite important thing to kind of note that social media prompts you to share stuff, share stuff that you might not necessarily share with people that you know, and you will share it and it becomes a property of someone else. And what they do with that is something that you have no control over. I think there's a really interesting parallel here to academia. <laughs> Uh, Jana Bacevic has written about reclaiming the life of the mind. Oh, big up Jana, she's a legend. And the, the tendency in uh, academia for, you know, everything we do, our creative agency produces things that are commoditized by the institution. Yeah. Mm. And so at the education uh, faculty picket line uh, in the last few weeks, we've been having lots of debates about where do you draw the line in terms of the picket line? You know, if you're doing things mm. that are for your own enjoyment, is this a positive thing? Mm. And I started off with a kind of uh, UCU ultra stance on this, of no work is work, mm. we're not working. Mm. And I realised in the last few weeks, firstly, how absolutely fucking miserable that has made me over the course of this drawing. Mm. And then recognising that actually things we are doing, that you know, it's an opportunity to reclaim our love of these things mm. and to do them in a way that can't be counted, yes. isn't seen by the institution. Well, we're creating value for, for, for us rather than the institution. It's so interesting, Mark, that you say that and how quickly institutions can either co-opt or be seen as adjacent to things we're doing, which is either for our enjoyment or our own individual collective activism. Like, for the podcast, so many people say to us, oh yeah, what's that Goldsmith podcast? No, it is literally it was started by us. It's no institutions like, in, like it's None. just nothing. It's just us. 
like but how quickly people see something that is a collective and they associate it with either corporate or institution and it's like no and it's a fine line but we are very clear about that but it's also the flexibility of of the capitalist machine right to be able to be jumped to something for a university a university is a business right so it needs to be flexible and agile and it understands to survive in the modern post-industrial state you need to be able to co-op stuff or be adjacent to stuff so for example like gold suit presenting itself as even though it has all those kind of things about racism and kind of all that big uh, the student, uh, the occupation. Student, student occupation but at the same time it will still present itself as a di- diverse place because yeah. it knows that itself right Tracy Cotton, uh, the American sociologist, wrote an incredible article uh, five or six years ago now. As it was content analysis of the online abuse she receives, um, and you know, in trying to situate that in terms of the political economy of engagement, and arguing—I can't remember the exact way she phrased it—but the universities benefit from the reputational capital of this engagement, <laughs> and they blame Everything. academics when things go wrong. Mm. And it just leaves me with such a vivid image of university managers literally pushing academics out into the public sphere, standing back and being ready to strike if things go wrong. Mm-hmm. And the point in that article is that if you don't look like the traditional image of an academic, then that is so rife with danger and threat. You know, I'm a middle-class white guy, so I do look like the image of a traditional <laughs> academic. Mm-hmm. And the worst I've ever had directed on me online is people saying I'm pretentious or mm-hmm. kind of, you know, my politics are crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the valorization of engagement within the academy we really need to be aware of this kind of dark side of impact, dark side of engagement. And I think professional associations like the BSA have a role to play here, UCU has a role to play, and we urgently need to reform how universities regulate this, because at the moment the kind of procedures I think are not fit for purpose. Totally agree. Yeah. Is it weird hearing us talk at you, Mark, about like, something you've been <laughs> studying for so long? And we're just like, what do you think about this? Or we think about that? <laughs> Mark, it's not that. I knew it would come. I knew this day would come. I knew this day would come to finish working this video. That was a brilliant conversation. I particularly love the fact that we kind of, there's no boundary in what we've been talking about between this and politics. Oh yeah, always. Um, always into in this, our main thing with surviving society is it's all so, can link back to the political moment so easily. Like, it's so connected. I don't know how people can separate it. To do that would seem artificial because you can see the links, right? And if you don't see the links, you're choosing not to see them because they're so glaringly obvious, I think. But, you know, that's the side of scholarship, you know, the kind of orthodox conception of it I find most frustrating. Mm-hmm. That sense of, yeah, I mean, clearly people do see them, and, but you don't follow them. There's mm-hmm. a point at which, in the interest of propriety and objectivity, you stop. Mm-hmm. Whereas it seems clear, you know, that these are all political questions, mm-hmm. implicitly. Mm. Definitely. And that was a conversation, so thank you for... <laughs> oh, Mark, we've wanted to get you on for ages, so it's so great we've got to chat with you finally. Thank you so much, and thank you so much, listeners. See you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. Please support the podcast by rating, following and subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. And please consider supporting the production of the podcast by joining our Patreon community. 